You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered them? You have received the law that was given through angels and have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Thanks, you guys. Good morning. Well, I, I missed you all last week. Did you miss me? Yeah, right. That's okay. <clears throat> uh, we, were, we were in Sioux City. My father is a Met- United Methodist pastor, and after like 40-some thousand years of ministry, he retired last weekend from his church in Sioux City. So uh, the family, we all went up there and, and spent a couple days with our family and, and with my, my dad. Uh, so we, we had a great morning there, and, and uh, I say all that to say that if I repeat exactly what Mike has to say, then I apologize, but there'll be no excuse for you not to get the message, right, if, if, if you hear some of the same stuff. So it's been a crazy week. It's been awesome, but I've been excited to come here today and share with you with regard to this message that, that Stephen, our boy Stephen, that he has. Now, if you've been hanging with us for a while, you've heard a couple other messages about messages from Peter about his message and about Paul. Well, well Stephen's message is, is, I think, pretty interesting here. And if you've ever read the entire chapter of Acts, uh, chapter 7, you see this message. And, and it's not light reading. It's, as you saw from our, our little taste that Lisa gave to us, with it begins with, you stiff-necked people. That's the little section I pulled out for you. I thought I'd encourage you there. Um, you, you see that there's, there's some harsh rebuking happening here in this message. Now, the context of this message is, is kind of what Mike talked about last week, I'm sure, that Stephen is just a regular normal guy. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't grow up uh, becoming a preacher. He, he was a guy that the apostles grabbed and said, hey, we need seven men to help oversee the distribution of food to our widows. Okay, so he basically became like an assistant manager at Bennigan's, uh, you know, to the, to the early church. So they were all uh, coming together to perform this, this act of service, and in doing so, Acts chapter 6 tells us that Stephen performs uh, these mighty works and wonders among the people so much that they were amazed and the Jews became very angry at Stephen. So he clearly has some things happening, going on. And, and what you see with his message is, is many things. You know, we don't know what these signs were, but I can promise you this. I highly doubt that Stephen would have ever thought that his assistant manager of Bennigan's church job would have turned into the longest recorded sermon in the New Testament apart from Jesus. Probably wouldn't have thought about that. But you see, when you look at the message of Stephen and you realize that the message is more than just his words, you see that anything is possible. You see, 
I'm going to talk to you about the words of Stephen's message, but I'm also going to talk to you about the message of Stephen's life. You see, Stephen is, is giving this talk that essentially becomes a history lesson about how the Jews got the temple, how they got their church. He basically gave them the story of their church's building project, but then he points them to the fact that they lost sight of what the church building was supposed to be all about, which was worshiping God. And, and, and then he points them to, to Jesus, the ultimate object of worship or person of worship, and talked about how they missed the boat. And of course, they didn't like that. So they killed him. See, these are the words of his message, but I think there's more to it than just the words. I think our messages are not just what we say, because we all have messages, right? You remember that. Our, our message goes beyond just what we say to, to what we do with ourselves, to how we respond to our past failures and our past successes, and, and to, to the attitudes that we have. All of these things incorporate into our message. So what I have here to share with you sums up what I believe is the life message of Stephen. It's comprised of four different things. And the first thing is this. Stephen's message, first and foremost, is that qualification for leadership is tied to godliness. Now, we're just going to talk about that for a second here. See, when the apostles needed to choose a person to oversee the food distribution, they didn't ask the question, hey, who's ever done this before? Or who, who has experience with this? Now, maybe these guys did, but the, the question that the disciples asked and, and, and the qualification that they put forth according to, to the scriptures is this. They chose seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. So Stephen was not chosen because he was a great manager of people or he had some great business skill. He was chosen first and foremost because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was devoted to God. Now this does not mean that he wasn't qualified. It simply means that the foundation for leadership in the church is godliness. It is spirit-led living. And that's a big deal. Now, this doesn't mean perfection. If you're hearing this and going, oh man, you know, I, I want to be a leader in the church, but I'm not perfect. This is not what this is saying. It's simply saying that you don't get anywhere in leadership if you don't first have the foundation of faith and of godliness. That's what he's saying. It doesn't mean you have to know the Bible backwards and forwards, but it says that he was filled with the Spirit. That means that the driving force in Stephen's life, the primary thing that motivated Stephen was his love for God and his desire to worship Jesus. See, now most people believe that, that when you form leadership teams in churches, and I've certainly been in many of these meetings, you know, what's I'll talk about my experience here in a minute, but, but I've been in many leadership meetings in churches where we got to grab a group of people to be the leaders of the church, and we start asking questions like, okay, well, do we have any, like, CEOs in the congregation, or do we have any, like, people with, like, all kinds of, like, entrepreneurial skills or, or you know, demonstrated uh, patterns of success in the business world, and it's, it's amazing to me how often we don't ask the question, well, are these people filled with the Holy Spirit? Are these people on fire for Christ? Do they lead by their example in terms of what God's doing in their lives? And it's amazing how many times we just kind of just blow that stuff off. Now, in this body, we've been having a lot of talks about this lately, about how we need to look at our church and we need to look at our leadership. We need to make sure that, that we understand that to be a leader means that you're setting an example and that you're a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and that's something that we can't sacrifice. Now, experience and knowledge and skill certainly helps, but never at the expense of 
godliness or being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you may look at, at, at that and you may say, well, you know, do we want to take our, our, our best, most spirit-filled people and put them in charge of menial jobs like distributing food or, or coordinating this type of thing? And the, the answer to that is, 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 is also found in the, the message of Stephen. If you look at him and you say, this guy's overqualified for his job, you, you might be able to say, yeah, he is. But then you have to remember that Stephen's job was not just to be a, a food distributor. Stephen's job was to be a leader in the church. Think about that. He was a leader. That's what he led in, but that's what his mission was and his message was. You see, Stephen understood that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, every job in the church is ministry. Every job in the church is important. And when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, you recognize that it's a ministry. You recognize that it's a ministry. I, I had this experience and when I was pastoring this little church in Burlington. You know, one of our, you know, this, this church was, was very small. It was tiny. It was like less than 50 people when I first got there. And, and we didn't, they didn't even have enough money for a full-time pastor. They didn't have any paid custodial help. They didn't have any paid secretarial help. It was basically, you know, whatever needed to be done, people did it. We didn't even, listen to this, we didn't even have our trash picked up at the church. We were so poor. So when I was getting my orientation around the, the building, they said, okay, now here's the trash. And I said, well, where does it go? Well, you take it home with you. It's like when you go to the campground, right? You take your trash home. You go to church. Hey, it's your turn, Bob. Take the trash, right? So, I mean, that was just kind of, we just did what we had to do, right? And I, and I had this, this part-time volunteer secretary. Her name was Shelly. And, you know, as a part-time volunteered secretary with, like, no formal training or experience, I didn't set a lot of expectations on Shelly. I didn't, like, go into that situation and go, all right, I'm going to have her do this, do this, do this. Boy, I was wrong about that. See, this was a woman who was so filled with the Holy Spirit, she took her little part-time volunteer secretarial job to the nth degree. I mean, I, 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 like I said, I was blown away how she turned that little position into a women's, court, women's ministry coordinator position and into a counseling ministry. She used to take a, 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 an elderly woman in the community and buy her groceries with her every week because she couldn't get out. She used to meet with young single moms and mentor them and help them. She had a, led a prayer group in our church, all, all because in her mind, I said, why do you do this? She said, well, that's my job. You know, I'm the volunteer part-time secretary. I'm like, wow, I wish I could like take, you know, take that and put that in my body sometimes as far as like every job being so important. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you recognize that any job that you have becomes a powerful ministry. And we certainly saw the Holy Spirit do many, many mighty things in her life. And that's what ministry is all about. That's what leadership is about. It's about letting God use you wherever you are, no matter what you're doing. When you have the Holy Spirit and you recognize that, then every job becomes important. And you realize that really there are no menial jobs in the church. Because everything is used by God. Look at what God did with Stephen. The second thing that I want to share with you about the message of, of Stephen is this, that the kingdom of God is not about buildings. And I put in parentheses sacred cows. We'll talk about that in a minute. But about Jesus. You see, that was really the, the, the point of, of, of Stephen's verbal message was to rebuke the Jews over how they turned the temple into an idol— and ultimately, really, that's what had happened. 
You see, the religious leaders accused Stephen when they were mad at him. They said, look, he's speaking out words against this holy place and against our law. Now, that holy place happened to be a particular synagogue, which was connected to the temple. And if you recall what the temple was all about, this was, this was the center of their religion. This was the most important place they could ever comprehend. To the Jews, God lived in the temple, and that was where it was all, where it was all about. What it was all about was the temple. So Stephen comes against that and he enrages them when he talks about how God doesn't live in the temple. In fact, if you remember from the Gospels, Jesus himself got into a lot of trouble when he predicted that the temple would be destroyed. And I would say it was probably the straw that broke the camel's back when during Holy Week Jesus walks into the temple and cleans the whole place out. It says, this is going to be left desolate to you as he predicts its destruction, which would come true in 70 AD. The temple was a big deal to the Jews. Have you ever heard the phrase sacred cow? Do we know what that means? Pastors all know what it means, right? See, sacred cow, of course, that comes from the Hindu faith that believes that, that all animals have, have divine life in them, especially cows. That's why you don't eat beef when you go to India. So, but it, it, the Christian church has sort of hijacked it, or pastors have sort of hijacked it. So when you come to a church, you know, I got a phone call a couple weeks ago from the guy who's interviewing to take my place at the Burlington Church. He says, hey, Keith, what are the sacred cows down there? I remember when I sat with Mike, you know, talking about coming to this church. Well, Mike, talk to me about the sacred cow. What are those things? Do we know what they are? I'll tell you. A sacred cow in the church world is anything that you can't mess with without freaking a bunch of people out. That's really what it is. It's something that, that we in churches ascribe some sort of intrinsic, supernatural, spiritual power to it that really is ridiculous. But we do it. It could be a banner that's been hanging in the church for 50 years that someone named Martha sewed out of like her knapsack that she had when she was in the Depression. It could, be, it could be some sort of program that you can never stop, even though it's completely ineffective and outdated. Usually there's a piano around a church that's a sacred cow. I, do we have one around here? Maybe. In Burlington, this little church, we had three pianos, or two pianos right in the front. We didn't play either one of them. So I walk in, hey, what do we have all these pianos for? We should move them. You can't do that. Well, sure I can. It's got wheels and there's a door. <laughs> We've all got them. It, it, it might be a particular building. This is timely for us, First United Methodists, as we're talking about buildings. These things could become sacred cows. It could become, thing, you know, the song that you sing when the babies are baptized or when the offering comes forward or whatever. These are all things that could become sacred cows. And, and whether we like to admit it or not, you know, we've all got them. And the temple certainly was the most sacred of the cows for the Jews. And here's what Stephen's message was to them and to us. There is no physical location or building where God is any more present than any other place. Did you catch that? There's no special place. There's a special person, and his name is Jesus. Now, I know that might seem pretty obvious to us, but it's amazing to me how many Christians don't understand that, because we like to become superstitious. We want to know, or we want to believe that there's some place we can go where God will meet us, or whatever. Well, let me tell you something. I, I've been to places around the world where, where people get on their knees, and, 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 and 
silently crawl for miles to get to a place where they think that Jesus or the Virgin Mary will show up. It happens in places like Fatima, Portugal. It happens in places like Lourdes, France. It happens in places where I visited a few years ago in Mejigoria, where people think that God is there more than anywhere else. Now, I know you might say, oh, that's a Catholic thing. They do that kind of stuff. Let me tell you something. It, it's a Protestant thing, too, because I think it's a human thing. Anybody here remember, Mike will remember this, about 15 years ago, there was a huge revival that took place in a place called Brownsville, Florida. You remember that? Down in this little town in this panhandle of Florida, there was this church that had these revival meetings, and, and something happened there, and people began to descend upon this place, and, and this church of about 800 to 1,000 people had these nightly services, and over 2 million people came during the course of, of several years, every night to the church, because they believed that God was there in Brownsville. And I remember hearing it, you know, when I was in the Quad Cities, we got to get to Brownsville. We got to get down there. God is there. God's showing up down there in Florida, and we got to go. So buses were going, trips were happening, people were going down to Brownsville, because that's where God was. He was in that special place. little interesting side note. After a few years, the pastors decided that, that they were going to be able to take God with them, so they went on tour. No joke. So they had the Brownsville, the Brownsville revival on the road, on the tour. I wonder which bus God got to ride in, right? So fast forward a, a few years, and I just did some research on it this week. That, that church now, all the pastors are gone. Nightline is not reporting on it anymore. The television cameras have been turned off. The church has shrunk down to around 400 people in worship, and they're $11 million in debt. And the buildings that were constructed for the revival now sit empty and unused. Let's see, the message of Stephen that he spoke to the Jews so many years ago, I think it rings true for us. Listen to what he says. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Hold on a second. What this is talking about is the fact that when the Jews were roaming through the desert, they wanted a building. They wanted a place where they could meet God. So God gave them this tabernacle, the, the place where God would dwell with them. And, and as they came into their land, now they said, well, we got the land, right? Now we got to build the building. Sound familiar? We got, to, we got the land. Now we got to build the building because that's where God's going to show up. And we have to have that. So David goes before the Lord and says, hey, we got we to start a campaign. We got to build this building, right? And God says, okay, but your son's going to do it. So they direct this, this glorious temple that was built for the glory of God to be used by God's people to, to bring glory to him. But here's what God says about that. And this is Stephen's words to these Jews as they're sitting in their temple idolatry. He says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? We must remember Stephen's message to the Jews and to us. The kingdom of God is not about a building, a location, or any material thing. We're not superstitious. Now, certain places may have some sort of sentimental value to us, because of what's happened to us there. But make no mistake, God is no more there 
than he is anywhere else. I used to believe that God lived at Wesley Woods Camp in Indianola. I used to believe that. That was my special, and it still is my special holy place. That's where, I'm, that's where I really met Jesus. To me, that place will always be special. But I'm telling you what right now, it's not the place that's special. You see, God does promise that there will be opportunities where he will dwell with us. But it's not because of the building, it's because of the people. See, God has promised only one place where he will dwell. And he says, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So the question isn't, what is the temple about or what is the building about? The message is this. Are we gathered together in the name of Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then we have the presence of God with us. Whether it's here, whether it's REC Drive, or whether wherever it is, God is with us. That was the message. Third thing, I think is Stephen's message. Religious people are often stiff-necked. Now, we don't use that phrase a lot, but, but I think we can get the idea. Stiff-necked means that you can't move. You just look in one direction. We'd call it like tunnel vision, right? You get, you get something in your mind. You don't change. You stay with it, and it's all good, right? Nothing really works with that. Why, why are religious people so susceptible to that, I think? Well, you know, I don't really think it's, it's a religious people thing as much as it's just a people thing, right? I mean, I know a lot of non-religious people that are pretty stiff-necked too. Now, the Jews had become that way. They'd become so stiff-necked in their belief and in their ways of doing that that Stephen rebuked them and said, you guys are resisting the Holy Spirit. Basically, what he was saying was, God's trying to take you one way, but you're just stuck in your own way. It can happen. Now, I think religious people are are especially susceptible to this because we live in the world of of ultimate truth and, and right and wrong, and what can happen to us And what can happen to me a lot of times is the way that we like to do things can kind of get intertwined with what we think the truth is, and then it becomes hard to un-intertwine that. So we get locked in our ways of what's the best way to do this, or what's the best way to sing that, or what's the best way to have this, or whatever. And pretty soon that becomes, you know, the same thing as the truth. And we, we struggle sometimes to see the difference. And when we do, really strange, terrible things can happen, you know. It can happen with baptism. It can happen with what kind of music that we sing, how we're supposed to dress. You know, the list can go on and on. I, I, I told the other service about this story. Uh, when I was in Davenport, there was a guy and his wife that came to our church, this, this older couple that came to our church. And I remember thinking to myself when he walked in, because I knew who he was, I said, what in the world's he doing here? I mean, this guy was like a holy roller, man. I mean, he was all over town, and he was like this, this you know, kind of well-known guy for being pretty vocal about, you know, things with his faith. And I remember thinking to, to myself, he ain't going to make it here. And, and, you know, he hung with us for a couple months, and then, and then I asked, you know, Pastor Craig, what happened to so-and-so? Oh, he got mad about the way we baptized this baby or the way we sang that song, and he took off. Well, I, I kind of wondered whatever happened to him, and I had talked to a few other pastors, and he went from our church to this church, and pretty soon, this is no joke, here's what happened to this guy and his wife. Okay? They were so stiff-necked in the way that they had to have everything just their perfect way. And it wasn't just that they would say to you in a humble way, well, I just prefer it this way. It was, no, that's, that's against Jesus. You know, you baptize that baby with that song, that's from the devil. I mean, that type of, that type of mindset. So pretty soon, in the entire Quad City uh, region, there were no churches left that he thought were holy or righteous. So him and his wife decided that they had to have church in their house together. And I thought, how sad was that? And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, eventually they couldn't even agree, so now they had church in their own separate bedrooms on Sunday morning. (laughs) No joke. 
It's a true story. I mean, that's what can happen if we refuse to let the Holy Spirit have his way in our lives. We can get locked into our, ourselves. And Stephen says, that's exactly what happened to you. And that's what Jesus said to them. And that's why they missed the boat when it came to Jesus. And that's why ultimately the prophecy that Jesus gave them about their temple was true. You see, their sacred cow was leveled to the ground. There's nothing left. Finally, the message of Stephen is this. Doing the work of the gospel is worth whatever it costs. Whatever it costs. These apostles, man, they didn't mess around. These guys weren't, weren't just playing a game. Following Jesus, doing their ministry cost them something, didn't it? It cost them everything. And yet, they were still willing to pay that price. Because according to the message of Stephen, no price is too high when it comes to the gospel. Is that true for us? What are the prices that we're willing to pay for the gospel? More importantly today, what are the prices that we're not willing to pay for the gospel? What price is too high for you in your life for the gospel? Is it your time? Is it your, your energy? Is it your devotion? Is it your fun? Is it all your activities that you want to do? Is it your sacred cow? Is it your pride? Is it your bitterness? Whatever it might be, every one of us has a line that we're willing to go for the gospel and then a place that we go where we say, not that price. And the message of Stephen is this. There is no price too high when it comes to the gospel. We must be willing, church, if we want to see the kind of movement of the Holy Spirit that this church saw in Acts, if we want to see that in our lives, if we don't just want to sit around and just go through the motions, we have to be willing to up the price and recognize that whatever it costs us to do ministry to this world, to our city, to our families, to our jobs, to wherever we go, whatever we have to pay for that, it's worth it. Whatever it takes for us to be who God wants us to be, whatever we have to give up, whatever we have to lay on the line, I'm telling you right now, it's worth it. Stephen stands up and he looks to heaven at the time of his death. And you know, scholars kind of make, make weird things about this particular verse, and I don't know what to think about it. But he sees something that no one else has ever seen in the Scripture. He sees the Son of Man not seated on his throne, but standing. You know when you go to a show, it has to be pretty good for you to get up on your feet. Can you imagine what it's like to receive a standing ovation from the Son of Man? And that's what Stephen sees, because he's willing to pay that ultimate price. He looks up as he's about to be beaten to death with rocks, and he sees the Son of Man get off of his throne and stand up, ready to receive him. Man, what an honor. Those who, who sacrifice for the kingdom of God, Jesus says, will be paid a hundredfold. Now, we don't serve so we get something back, but man, we sure do. We receive. Are you standing on the gospel? in your life, is, is the price that you're paying, is it, is, it, is it nothing? No price is too high. Are you coming to church because you believe that you've got to get here because this is where God is? Or do you come because you, because you realize that God lives in you and you want to worship and fellowship with other believers and come together as a community to worship God 
in love and fellowship. I'm going to keep saying this, and so is Mike. Your life has a message. And so does mine. And so does ours as a church. May it mirror those messages that we've seen in these great men like Peter, Paul, and Stephen. Now, some of you are listening to this, and I'm, I'm about done. And you're saying, oh man, look at my life. I've, I've made so many mistakes. I've, 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 I've sacrificed the gospel for, for, you know, just because I didn't feel like going because it was raining. That's not a high price. But, but what, what kind of message do I have? Oh my God. Let me tell you something right now. It's never too late to add to your message. Never. And what kind of message does it show when you've been going one way for so long and all of a sudden you stop and start going the other way? That sends a pretty powerful message too. And it's a message that I think makes a big difference in this world. Remember, no ministry, no job is menial when you have the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit of God lives in us and does amazing things, signs and wonders that may offend the world, but when we recognize that that's okay, we'll keep following Jesus. Just maybe, just maybe in some way, we'll look to heaven too and get that standing ovation from God too. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these great men that we study, Lord. We thank you for their ministry. We thank you for the way that they have sacrificed and given so much. And God, we are humbled by that. We're convicted by that and we're challenged by that. Lord, I know I am. God, I pray that, that we would be repentant of the things that we have done that have not honored you and that you would spur us on to holiness and godliness that every job that we do, every position of leadership that we have, God, would, would bring you great glory and honor as we seek to do the work of your kingdom in this world, Lord. May our message bring glory to you, and may it be loud and clear. In Jesus' name, amen.